0: kebab, schadenfreude, shampoo, shortstop, shellfish, shenanigans, shuffleboard, shoemaker, shaziana, shoreline. These are words that start with shh. I'm Jeremy Allman. Welcome to Abstracts: colon, the future of science. We're making graduate research unprecedentedly accessible. Thank you so much for being here. Looking forward to sharing this episode with you, as always. So without further ado, let's go. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what's an aerospace engineer thinking about first thing in the morning? And what do we mean by dynamics, specifically aerospace dynamics? What's going on up there in orbit around our lovely little planet? Should we be worried about the exponential increase in orbital objects and debris and freefall around Earth? What's the future of aerospace engineering going to look like? How do we dispose of dead or defunct spacecraft? And what's their end of life going to look like? Answers to questions like these and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract So, Let's get this show on the road. Shaziana Kaderali is an engineering master's candidate at McGill University in space situational awareness and spaceflight dynamics. Her research is focused on the detection and characterization of unknown spacecraft maneuvers to help satellite operators avoid collisions. Shaziana completed her aerospace engineering degree specializing in space systems design at Carleton University. She was a senior lead in recovery and avionics for her rocket team, the telescope optics designer for her wildfire detection capstone satellite team, and the frame designer for the planetary rover team. She's a team player. She's an undergraduate astrophysical researcher at the University of Toronto, studying stellar and galactic dynamics, resulting in a lead author publication, and she worked in the aerospace industry in aerodynamics and acoustics. Shaziana grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland, competed in synchronized swimming and rock climbing, which she still enjoys. She plays four musical instruments, enjoys traveling, most notably to the Antarctic, social dancing and astrophotography, having captured comet Neowise. She plans to obtain her private pilot's license and involve herself in analog space missions. Shaziana continues to mentor her past teams and is also engaged in space outreach, and she aspires to one day become an astronaut. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome her onto the show today. Shaziana, how are you?
1: Good. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. So definitely first first guest I've had who has openly said that they want to become an astronaut. At what age did you decide that that was the ultimate goal?
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, that's a really good question. I think around six years old is my earliest memory of learning about space altogether. I remember learning about the moon rotating around Earth and Earth rotating around the sun, and I thought that was super cool, and that's when I wanted to get into space. Then I think around a few years later, I found out, oh, people have been to the moon, and I was like, I want to do that. I think a few more years later is when I found out, oh, there's actually women that have been to space too, and that's when I learned about Roberta Bondar, who's one of my inspirations. So I would say around like 12-ish years old is when I kind of was like, yeah, I think I want to be an astronaut, (laughs) but it wasn't really until third year of university that I was like, you know what, this is actually what I want to do, and I want to do it and get myself there, so...
0: That's awesome. So it's been a very, very long time coming, and the journey is still undergoing.
1: Very much so, yes. (laughs) That's awesome.
0: That's so cool. So you clearly got a ton of different interests and an extensive academic background in aerospace. I'd imagine it's pretty difficult to choose what to focus on at any given point in time. I would love to know, (laughs) like, what's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning, Uh (laughs) aerospace-wise?
1: You pretty much hit the nail on the head there that I'm super interested in so many things and it's very hard to choose. Um, this is one of my strengths and weaknesses, I like to think. Yeah. The first thing I think about in the morning, aside all the... Oh my god, it's the morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Aerospace-wise, is probably... I'm generally curious to know what's happening in the world today. What kind of news is out there on space, for example... Perseverance just landed on Mars. I'm always interested on hearing, when's Ingenuity about to fly? What have we learned from Mars so far? There's a whole bunch of firsts that have been set out. We're just looking at like space photos. Space photos are always very pretty and interesting and intriguing. Awesome. Um, so those are my first thoughts in the morning.
0: First thing in the morning, you're just, you're just diving into what is going on right now in our solar system.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. What mysteries are, are we still solving and what's left to figure out?
0: I would imagine quite a bit quite a bit this is a very, very large space it's so easy to get lost you know when you think about the universe as a whole we often think of earth as being just a tiny insignificant speck and i don't think you actually even look that far to realize how tiny earth is when you even just go out to mars and and mm-hmm. realize there's, there's a whole other world there that we're, we're currently exploring amazing so so happy that we're, we're chatting now while perseverance is doing its thing right now on the martian surface so
1: true And just to add to that, thinking about Earth as a tiny speck and not having to go so far, one of my favorite photos right now of Mars and the Mars exploration stuff going on is a picture from Mars view, from Mars night, of what Earth looks like on Mars. So from Earth, we can see Mars at night. Now we can also see Earth at night from Mars. (laughs) And it's so cool, just as impactful as the Voyager picture of Earth from Saturn. Mm -hmm. And it's, Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: It's a very unique point in time that we're in right now where we can see the Earth from these vantage points. It's crazy. Definitely. So in your intro, I'm kind of picking up on this dynamics focus. Mm -hmm. So what is aerospace dynamics in a nutshell? Let's start getting our feet wet here.
1: So dynamics in any field generally boils down to the study of forces acting on an object that create either movement or work. And dynamics is also, when we talk about spacecraft dynamics, the study of the object in interacting with its environment. So for me, that means in spacecraft dynamics, we have objects that are generally in motion with different forces acting on it. For me, the Earth orbiting. And so sometimes there will also be like forces like drag and other things that we call perturbations. So dynamics is really, we're looking at what's acting on the object and how is it interacting with its environment.
0: Got it. So do we have like this mega dynamics equation where we have like one one of the terms in the equation deals with the perturbations, one of the terms deals with drag, or do we have like these these massive volumes of equations that we use to solve various dynamics problems? Not that we need to go into the detail of those (laughs) equations. I'm just curious to know like how you actually deal with it on like a a deeper mathematical level.
1: So luckily for myself, my equations don't expand too gigantically. Okay. Uh, one of my lab mates was studying the dynamics of a spacecraft about a binary asteroid. Now that was like pages long of a of one equation. That was nuts. Super cool, but nuts. Um, and you're right, dynamicists often have to use these gigantic ex- equations to be able to capture all of the forces and all of the things that we need to account for when making either designing control systems, robotics, or filters even. For myself, luckily, I can use some of the more basic equations and things to do with orbital mechanics or orbital dynamics and some stuff that we probably would have learned if not in high school, then in like first-ish year university to third year, at least in my programs. Now, once you start adding layers of complexity, so if, if we were to continue with my research in different ways, then we might start adding more and more terms to these equations and they would get a little longer.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. So depending on the context, we're either dealing with one or multiple, and those can can vary in complexity. So you're a synchronized swimmer. And if I'm picturing (laughs) synchronized swimming, I'm imagining kind of this very dynamic activity where not only do you need to self-regulate, but also be aware of what's happening in your environment. Have you ever drawn a connection between synchronized swimming and like space situational awareness and all that?
1: In that sense, I actually had not. So thank you. I'm going to start using that now. Cool. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, synchronized swimming is, like you said, very much related to space situational awareness, especially in space. There's a whole dynamic and team dynamic happening. There's a whole nonverbal communication happening and everything that goes on. So yeah, well done. (laughs) That's impressive. I'm going to use that now.
0: Cool. I'm always trying to draw connections to people's lives because, again, you, you have done a lot. So presumably some of the things you focused on have been thematically related to others. Yes. Have you been synchronized swimming since you were very young?
1: Yeah. So around the same time I got interested in space, I got interested in synchronized swimming. I started swimming when I was six years old and went on through until graduation of high school.
0: I guess a pool is kind of the closest you can get to like anti-gravity, right? <laughs>
1: It is actually and that is one of the big things in astronaut training is they train in pools and that's how they simulate spacewalks so you're and, set. and other types of uh... yeah totally <laughs> I hope so.
0: Yeah oh that's that's amazing I just got so many questions because we have just so many different topics yeah. to touch on So your research you're kind of helping satellite operators avoid collisions mm-hmm. right So obviously this is where we're now kind of deviating away from the analogy of synchronized swimming there are no external operators that are controlling what you're doing but i'm curious to know like when i think about a a satellite operator i'm almost imagining that it's similar to like an air traffic controller how might a satellite operator's job be similar or different to that of an air traffic controller
1: ah that's interesting i suppose in synchro we can call our controllers coaches Mm -hmm. although i wouldn't want to call them controllers but (laughs) yeah (laughs) in terms of air traffic control versus Spacecraft operators, I would say one of the major differences is the time frame, especially from between a satellite versus one aircraft. An aircraft is going to go maybe for a multi-hour duration flight, and that's probably as long as it's going to be. Aircraft operators or controllers will definitely be controlling multiple different crazy things all at once, but satellite operators, they'll also be controlling multiple different crazy things at once, but also over the period of time of, of the orbit and lifetime of spacecraft, and often spacecraft can be in orbit for decades. (laughs) So I'd say that would be one big difference. A similarity would be both controllers and operators would probably be working almost all hours. So in space, you know, nothing really stops. Once everything's in motion, it's going to keep going, right? right? And crises will happen whenever they decide to happen. So there's a similarity. Other differences, the environment itself is quite different. Going from something that's in the atmosphere, which means the aircraft itself, the body that's being used to travel, is quite different than a spacecraft. Spacecraft propulsion is different. So that the type of control that's happening will be slightly different as well. And again, it'll be similar. You know, aircraft came first. So we built a lot of things based on what we knew about aircraft for building spacecraft.
0: Interesting. So so I'm curious, could we discuss a bit more about the distinction between how it is that like a commercial airliner propels itself through the air <laughs> versus how a spacecraft propels itself through the air.
1: Yeah. So for aircraft, generally, at least with a say a jet engine, there's a, like a motor and a fan and a compressor. The air gets compressed, it combusts and it ejects stuff and it uses the air coming in through the jet engine and converts it into energy and allows the aircraft to propel forward. You can also have aircraft or propellers, and that does a slightly different thing. As you can tell, this is not my strong area, so I'll move into spacecraft. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> spacecraft, especially like if you think about rockets and then otherwise spacecraft propulsion, they're very similar, and they build on Newton's laws, where for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So what's really happening for rockets and spacecraft propulsion is there's a bunch of the stuff that's burning and still combusting, but getting ejected. And all that stuff is getting ejected and pushing the other thing forward. So it really like boils down to we eject mass and move mass forward. And that's pretty much what happens. There are newer propulsion systems coming in that I won't talk about as much. For example, like more green energy type things, electrical propulsion, ion propulsion, stuff like that. I don't know as much of that field, so I won't touch on it too much. hmm but there are other things at play here that could happen too.
0: Okay. Do you currently have a title for your thesis?
1: Yes. So it's it. actually what you read in my bio. It's the detection and characterization of unknown maneuvers in spacecraft.
0: Okay. So <laughs> that's kind of scary that we have maneuvers that are unknown. I mean, can you maybe mm-hmm. shed a little more light on what we don't know about the spacecraft hurtling around our planet right now?
1: So one of the main goals is to understand the intent of why a spacecraft has changed, which is why we talk about characterization. Now with spacecraft, the reason why we might not know what's happening are twofold. One is you can have active spacecraft, which is something that's controlled by an operator, and they may decide to change their orbit and their trajectory without telling the other operators what's happening, and of course, as you can imagine, that can pose some big collision risks. And as I'm sure you can also imagine, collisions in space are pretty catastrophic so, yeah. <laughs> with big consequences. And then the second reason that these can happen are because of defunct satellites, which are satellites that are no longer active, no longer in control or controlled, and are still orbiting the Earth. They haven't had chance to either go into a graveyard orbit or deescalate and come back to Earth. And this is the end of life portion of the orbital debris.
0: Did you just say graveyard orbit?
1: Yeah. It's a great band name. <laughs> it's what is called for an orbit that spacecraft that are no longer active may go to. So it's really far out away from Earth, generally in what we call a geospatial orbit. So about 40,000 kilometers away from Earth, even farther than that, actually.
0: Oh. <laughs> Wait, just to get a sense of scale here 40,000 kilometers, you said?
1: Off of the surface of the Earth,
0: yeah. And how high does the ISS orbit?
1: So the ISS is in an orbit called Low Earth Orbit, or LEO, and this is around four to 600 kilometers off the surface of the Earth, generally around 400.
0: Oh, that's like, that's like nowhere near the graveyard.
1: Nowhere near.
0: So we don't need to worry about the ISS and the graveyard uh, interacting unfavorably.
1: Exactly. But we do need to worry about the other spacecraft in that region. So... Low Earth orbit, it's a really, really popular orbit because it's closer to Earth. So the communications are better generally. There's less delay, less interference potentially. It's it's closer to the Earth, so it's a little bit easier to like deorbit something. So that's another end-of-life cycle where something after a certain amount of time, uh, aerodynamic drag will be able to, from Earth's atmosphere, pull the spacecraft down, slow it down, and eventually spiral it back into the atmosphere of the Earth, maybe burn it up or deposit it somewhere in a graveyard of different sorts. (laughs) On Earth. Earth. So low Earth orbit is actually riddled with orbital debris in some ways, because it's been such a popular orbit. And things like SpaceX's um, Starlink satellites and other global network satellites want to use this orbit as well, putting about like 10,000 satellites in there. So this becomes a big problem. And with every piece of equipment that we launch into space, there's the risk of orbital debris. And this is one of the big pieces to my thesis as well, and one of the big drivers for why this is so important. Because space debris can range from anything as small as a paint chip, to a bolt, to rocket boosters, to rocket bodies, to full-on spacecraft. And sometimes if they're a little too high, they won't even come back to Earth either. And if we don't have any residual fuel, we can't put them in a graveyard orbit. So they just stay there. (laughs) And since things are hurtling in space super, super fast, for example, the ISS is at 27,580 kilometers an hour. Super fast.
0: Okay. So so that means that it's orbiting the Earth like every hour and a half or something like that.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. So astronauts on the ISS will experience about 16 sunsets and sunrises every day (laughs) because the ISS travels around the Earth every 90 minutes.
0: Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's that's amazing. Any fun facts about low-Earth orbit that you want to share with us right now? Other than that, it's where the ISS is.
1: Oh, that's where the ISS is. It's a big orbit of interest because it's closer to Earth for either communications, for sending astronauts, etc. But it is filling up with debris.
0: So are there other orbits that we're not currently occupying that we'd like to occupy? Something that might have other benefits?
1: So LEO, like I said, is where the ISS is. It's good for the quick coming and back from Earth. There's medium Earth orbit, which is between low Earth orbit and geospatial orbit, or also high Earth orbit with the graveyard and telecom orbits are. There's what are called molnia orbits or polar orbits. They um, have this high, what's called an eccentricity. So it's super elongated. It's this huge, long oval orbit. And it'll pass over certain areas, for example, the poles, if it's a polar orbit. And it'll pass over an area quickly and then an opposite area slowly so that it can get even more data and information from it. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other thing about low-Earth orbits is it's for Earth observation. That's one key thing. MEO, medium-Earth orbits probably do that a little bit as well. But low-Earth orbit's a little bit better for that.
0: Got it. Okay, cool. I just want to get a bit of a sense of... Uh what our local orbiting space is like yeah you're kind of coloring it as being this very busy space a lot of debris but there's so much space (laughs) like is it cluttered compared to what it was 100 years ago or is it cluttered the way that like your room looks when you haven't folded your laundry in three weeks
1: so you've hit on a good bunch of points there a little bit of both yes space is big why aren't there more collisions in space and how do we actually make it to Pluto? Cause space is big. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, it is definitely busier than it was when we first started launching things into orbit, which is around the 1960s. And it's just exponentially increasing. So that means that the risks are getting higher. Yep. So in some ways, yeah, it kind of does look like when your room is cluttered, you haven't folded your laundry and it's it's been a little while.
0: Hey, so I just finished my first audio course. It's called The Secret Life of Words, and I cover everything from the mental representation of language to how to resolve ambiguities and become a better communicator. It's jam-packed. I can guarantee you're going to enjoy some part of the course. You can access it via the link that I'm going to put in the description. The course is available on Listenable, and you can access the whole thing with a seven-day free account. I'm also going to put a link to a 30% off discount for a one-year membership. I'd love to know what you think about it. Honestly, it's been a really fun couple of months working on it, putting it together, and I'm just excited to have it out there for you to listen to. So, have fun, enjoy, and thanks for the support.
1: So, with the increasing risks and increasing interests in space and space uses and space assets, there's also this known theory called Kessler syndrome which is this proposed dilemma that there's only a usable amount of time left before we fill up the space around Earth and render space travel far too hazardous and impossible to use. So this limitation is kind of like the doomsday of, oh no, we're going to become Earth-locked and we won't be able to do any more space research or space travel and that kind of thing. And that is something that dynamicists and people in space debris areas and that kind of thing are very aware of.
0: So... Is this just one of those like doomsday theories where it's like this might happen, but it's in like four hundred million years, so we'll be like we'll have other other problems to face before <laughs> then, like getting wiped out by an asteroid, or is this imminent?
1: A little bit of all of the above.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough.
1: So in some ways, like because everything's increasing and all of the interests and all of the risks are increasing exponentially. So it started out with only like, I don't know, five or six launches in a year in the 1960s, if that, to now we have like a hundred and like, and private companies and other companies are hoping to do like launches every day, if not like 10 launches a day in year's times. For example, like with the global network type satellites for getting global Wi-Fi, those take about 20 to 60,000 satellites in one orbit. So if you're going to launch that many at a time then that doomsday gets a little closer. It's similar to how years ago with the environment and with climate change that we see people just putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, but the problem is now and we're seeing the impacts now. And for example, to bring it back to space, the ISS actually does have to use maneuvering and propulsion burns in order to avoid objects in space. And the solar panels on the ISS are always hit by little micrometeorites and little pieces of rock and dust in space Mm -hmm. so that poses risks to the astronauts too and to other spacecraft as well as soon as something collides it's going to become multiple pieces that's going to create more debris and that's going to propagate the problem even further and this has already happened in past before There's a common example that's used is the Cosmos-Iridium collision that happened, I think, in about 2009. And these were two spacecraft. The operators didn't want to move their spacecraft for the other operator or the other spacecraft. So they didn't. And they collided. Oh, goodness. That was over 10 years ago. And there's still debris objects in space due to that collision. Right. Two
0: objects became many
1: became thousands and there's some interesting simulations online on youtube that show this type of thing happening when i do presentations this often one of the videos and examples i like to show because it really drives in that that picture of you know this can be catastrophic and not only in the moment but for the future as well
0: (laughs) i have a question for you yes do you think humans are better at solving problems or creating them
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know, we're good at both. I think we like to solve problems, and I think to solve a problem, we create them too. But I think um, we do create a lot of problems anyways. <laughs> I don't often solve them. <laughs>
0: it, it almost, at least from what we've spoken about in the last few minutes, it sounds like in an attempt to solve a problem, we either create two or more, or the potential for, like, way more problems. Like, just by putting (laughs) two satellite operators in charge of controlling two satellites, at any moment in time, if emotions get elevated or people are stubborn, we can just turn two orbiting objects into thousands of orbiting (laughs) objects. Yeah. And this this just feeds into this whole exponential increase of debris. It's not only are we putting things into space faster, but the more things are in there, the more collisions will happen, and the more collisions... Mm -hmm the more debris, and it's just going to be a runaway effect. Exactly. Now it's actually starting to really sink in. Uh-oh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then Kessler syndrome. That's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Luckily, space is big.
0: <laughs> right. Yes. Thank you for, for grounding us in that fact. I was I almost just shed a tear for the future of spaceflight, <laughs> or lack thereof.
1: I could see it coming into your, your picture there, that, oh no, this is going a little nuts. what What's going to happen? So yeah, just... Just to remind everybody, it's okay. Space is big. The chances of like big things happening are generally small at the moment. We just don't want them to become bigger. So the big thing is mitigation for these risks.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that reassurance.
1: Of course. <laughs> I appreciate
0: that. <laughs> this next one's also an opinion piece. Mm-hmm. What do you think the next 10 years of aerospace engineering is going to produce in terms of potentially a a revolution in the field. Do you feel a revolution coming or not? And if there is one, what can we expect?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. So I'm going to break it down in some way. So in the next 10 years of space, a lot is going to happen. This is extremely exciting times. And I'm sure we've heard this over the years anyways, but that's because space is always an exciting time. (laughs) Yeah. So right now we have a helicopter on Mars. This is the first helicopter on a planet outside of the Earth. So that's already one big thing happening now. Imagine what we can have in 10 years time. And I think whatever we have in 10 years time will be something that was unfathomable to me now. So I don't think I can really predict what we're going to have technology wise. There are so many things happening, for example, from different types of battery power to different types of just power to different types of... How do we minimize our electronics past the limitations we currently have? Quantum is becoming a big thing, which I don't know anything about. Um, but We'll get somebody
0: know. else on the show to talk quantum.
1: Good. Great. Do you have so, a question
0: for them, by the way, just so I can kind of tuck that in my back pocket? Ooh. If you had one question for someone applying quantum in the area of uh, spaceflight dynamics or or the like, what would you want to ask them?
1: I mean, I know that there's the satellite like uh, I think Keysat is what it's called and it uses quantum technology for security so I'd be interested to know more about quantum and security and then this kind of makes me think about like blockchain Mm -hmm. I think I need to do some learning and listening to your next interviewer to figure out what can I actually uh, ask about in quantum related fields
0: sure okay so we'll, (laughs) we'll keep in touch I'll check in with you on that
1: one let's do that yeah excellent but yeah to get back to your question so In 10 years' time, it's going to be interesting because there's always this bit of a time delay in a lag, too. If you think about the New Horizons spacecraft, it took nearly 20 years for that to go from conception to making it to Pluto. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So because there's such vast distances, there's a lot of planning. So maybe even 10 years' time, the things that we'll be seeing will be things that are starting out that we would think that, oh, that's not going to be possible like we have right now. And the other types of things will be things that have already started maybe 10 or 15 years prior, so starting now, starting five years ago, that are just coming to fruition, that are just succeeding at that point in time. So I think that's what 10 years from now might look like. In terms of a revolution, I guess that is one way to put it. We could say there's a revolution happening in some ways, but there's definitely big changes that are happening. So space in past, and which is why space debris is pretty important, is because Just similarly with climate change, it wasn't as thought about at the time. When we first started launching and we first had human spaceflight and human artificial spacecraft in orbit around Earth and going to other planets, we weren't really thinking quite as much about space. You know, space is big, so (laughs) it's endless. It's infinite. So we don't have to worry about it. And that's how we ended up with things like paint chips, rocket bodies, and bolts in space. Now, of course, sometimes this has to happen. There are some unavoidable bits to it. But that also is something that propagated through time and then became and then changed once collisions started happening. And so that Cosmos-Iridium collision is an example that's brought up a lot and is a good example and reason why there's so much emphasis on space debris. And there were changes that came with guidelines and rules and such. So we do have like an outer space treaty right now which outlines a number of details from how to use space, who can or cannot own space, and generally you cannot, and <laughs> keeping it p- a peaceful environment for peaceful purposes.
0: I didn't even know that you could own a part of space.
1: Yeah, generally you can't. <laughs> but there's, okay. uh, there's some loopholes because the, the Outer Space Treaty isn't a binding document and it's not something that can be enforced, it's just people who agree to follow it, follow it, which is one Uh, of the portions to the coming changes in revolution is space law and policy. This is a really big up and coming field right now. There's a lot of interest in this area to be able to figure out, okay, what are all these loopholes that we have? What are all the things we didn't think about in the past? And how do we make sure that we're thinking about the future and keeping space for the uses and purposes that we meant it to be for? So that's something that's big and changing and coming now that I would say is also revolutionizing space for us. Going cool. back to space debris a little bit, one of the rules that had come up in past, and I think it was only in the like early 2000s or something, was about the end of mission and end of life for a spacecraft, which is how we have the prescribed graveyard orbit and how we have this deorbit burn or the bringing it back to Earth due to aerodynamic drag this has now become requirements to have end of life figured out it's like a will basically <laughs> it's like a spacecraft's will and it's like this is what's going to happen at the end of our mission it's going to take this amount of time and there's time limitations placed in there as well something like within uh-huh. 5 years of end of mission then the end of life has to have occurred so there's things like that so cool i think i kind of branched out quite a bit there but um
0: it's like a spacecraft funeral
1: yeah <laughs> gotta plan it
0: all out you know like you don't want to wait the last
1: minute yeah that sometimes does happen though the unplanned funeral in a sense for a spacecraft where sometimes missions will actually get extended we'll find out oh we've had enough contingency and margins that were planned for that we can extend this mission and that happens to rovers on mars often that's happened to orbiting spacecraft often even deep space traveling uh, spacecraft Um, and sometimes it happens in the other direction that something has happened that wasn't something that we intended for or were able to plan for so the mission might just have to end abruptly and Mm -hmm. a good example of that is opportunity a rover on mars that i think it was 2018 was when it died and it was very sad there are a lot Mm -hmm. of sad comics about it (laughs) um but it actually fulfilled its mission for i think like double the amount of time it was intended for or even more so and what Mm -hmm. essentially killed it was uh a very strong dust storm on Mars. Even Curiosity had troubles with it. So um it's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. And then another example is the Cassini spacecraft that was orbiting Saturn. I think it was I think it was around 2018, 2019 maybe they um hurdled it into the atmosphere of Saturn and that was its end of life. They were like, okay, we're gonna burn it up into the atmosphere, but we're doing this because we can get so much more science.
0: like a kamikaze pilot
1: pretty much (laughs) yeah so it was like okay this is not the end of life that was necessarily planned but here's another way we can get even more out of our mission and then also fall in line with our end of life necessities so there there is sometimes this kind of like change ebb and flow of of plans that do happen
0: yeah wow so sad Bye, bye, Rovers. But thank you for your service.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right. Well, believe it or not, our time is uh, is is running down very quickly, wow. which brings me to my final question. Oh no!
1: So soon. Crazy. This is so eh? much fun. <laughs>
0: Insane. So the final question is kind of like a thought experiment, I guess. I want you to picture yourself standing at the foot of an auditorium, thousand-seater, packed to the brim, all eyes on you. What do you tell the audience?
1: Pause for some silence to begin with. And it's important to follow your dreams, but mainly to find something that you're passionate about. And at the same time, realize that everything you do is connected to something else in some way, even if you don't think it is. One of my big missions is to show the interconnectivity of the world in an impactful way. So that's what I would want to say. Awesome. And then I'd give them some time to think about it further and just stare.
0: Excellent. (laughs) We've got all the time in the world we need now. Exactly. In a few years time we won't be able to even orbit anything anymore. So we'll be glued to this Earth just thinking about that very statement.
1: Or we'll be spread out into different star systems and remember that statement because we mitigated it and got ourselves there.
0: That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. we got to got to take take control of that Kessler syndrome before it takes care of us. Precisely. Shaziana, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolute blast picking your brain today. Thank you. So have an awesome rest of your day, and I hope to stay in
1: touch. Thank you so much. Me too. This was incredibly fun. Thank you for having me.
0: You're very, very welcome. Thanks so much, Shaziana. Take Thank
1: care. Thank you, bye
0: Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com this podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts So feel free to check us out around the internet until then, take it easy